So my prayer is that we would pursue what God has for us as a church and that we would do that together. You're listening to a sermon series titled Together, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. My high school mascot was the Black Knights. It's pretty much everything that you want in a sports mascot. It's intimidating, dangerous, and threatening. I mean, it really doesn't get any more terrifying than a trained warrior riding a horse while suited in impenetrable armor, armed with a sword or a spear, ready to trample any threat to his kingdom. I loved going to a high school where our mascot was the Black Knights. Pretty amazing. And that's what we want in our mascots, right? We want something that is strong, that's invincible, well, that's terrifying. And some teams have mascots that invoke that sort of swag, right? The Gators. I don't know if there's any Florida fans here, but you certainly would make yourself known. If you're not a Florida fan, you would boo at this point. Uh, But the Gators, what's more terrifying in Florida than being in a pool and then someone says, oh no, a Gator got into the pool. There's nothing more terrifying than a backyard or a, a lake with a Gator in it and you're in it. Detroit, they have the Lions. That's kind of intimidating, maybe. Uh, Minnesota has the Vikings. I'm not sure what Washington is going to end up having now that they've ditched their mascot. Hopefully nothing soft like the Washington Corgis. I hope they don't go that route. Uh, But for, for that reason, for the reasons that we want a strong mascot, most sports teams would never select sheep as their mascot. Never. Why? Because sheep are a relatively helpless animal. Sheep can't defend themselves. They have no natural defense mechanism. So where other animals have dangerous claws, sheep have flat hooves. Where other animals have sharp teeth, I think we have a picture of it, sheep have pretty much flat teeth and apparently disgusting buck teeth at the uh, same time. So Sheep aren't able to defend themselves by shooting barbs from their fur like the porcupine. Instead, they're basically made out of pillows. So an entire flock of helpless pillows that happen to be filled with delicious mutton and lamb chops. It is no wonder that sheep are constantly in danger from predators. And so for those reasons, it is absolutely necessary for the safety and the well-being of not just a sheep, but all of the sheep together, that they have to reside in a small flock under the guidance, under the care, under the protection of a shepherd. The shepherd is not someone who is just kind of paid to keep an eye on the flock. He's not a hired hand. He's someone who intimately loves the sheep, knows the sheep, lives with the sheep, and he's even willing to lay down his life and die if it means defending his sheep from dangerous predators. Now, the Bible speaks often about God being our shepherd. You know the verse. Even non-believers know the verse. Psalm 23, 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus himself 
He called himself, in John chapter 10, the good shepherd. Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, later in life, in 1 Peter chapter 5, calls Jesus the chief shepherd. And here in Hebrews chapter 13, we get a glimpse of Jesus as the great shepherd. God, like a protective shepherd, watches over his people to defend them, to protect them, to lead them, to provide for them, and to guide them. And that means that we, we've used these different analogies in this series about what it means to be the church. We've called the church a people. We've called the church a community, a body. Uh, But here, we understand that the church is also like a flock of sheep. We are a part of a community that absolutely relies on the shepherd to guide us. And so without the shepherd, like sheep, we are helpless. We're prone to being consumed by wolves. Without the shepherd, we're lost. We're prone to wandering and losing our way. Without the shepherd, you and I, like sheep, are likely to starve or collapse because the shepherd is the one who leads us to places of rest and refreshment and satisfaction. Now, through Christ alone, through Christ alone, we see he is the chief shepherd of his sheep. He is the leader of the church. And though that is true, he's also provided under shepherds to care for his flock in spiritual and practical ways. Jeremiah 3.15 gives us a glimpse of this on the screen where Jeremiah says, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. So as we conclude our series that we've been going through, 1 Corinthians, now we're jumping over to Hebrews, we're concluding it today. And today what we're gonna see is who are the leaders of the church? If you haven't been here for the uh, duration of the series last week, Pastor Micah talked about what is the mission of the church, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, We talked about a few weeks prior to that, what does it mean to be a part of or a member of the body of Christ, a member of the church? We also talked about what does it mean to actually use our gifts in the church, and then the first week we looked at what is the church as a whole. And so today we're going to um, conclude this series and see what our response should be to biblical leadership in the church. So to do that, we turn our attention to where Dean just read, Hebrews chapter 13. The writer of Hebrews was writing, of course, to exhort and to encourage his listeners who were discouraged Christians in the first century. And he was writing to them to remind them that Jesus is better than anything in this world. If you're struggling with, is this world all that there is, I encourage you to read through. It takes about an hour and 10 minutes. Read through all of the book of Hebrews. And the conclusion you come to is that nothing in this world, nothing in Judaism, nothing that, could, that has been provided under the sun can compare with Jesus. He is better. And so the church needed to hear that in the midst of enduring hardship and persecution and trouble. And one of the things that can happen in the midst of trials, maybe this has happened to you during COVID-19, is that in the midst of trials, we forget. We're in the midst of hardship, maybe marital problems, relational problems, physical problems, and you and I, all of us, are prone to forget. We get so nearsighted that we only look at life through the lens of our experience instead of zooming out and remembering, wait a minute, no, I'm a part of a greater community. I'm a part of God's grand narrative that brings himself glory. And so as the writer wraps up what was intended to be what he calls a short letter, 
sounds like my writing. I'm just going to write you a quick short letter 13 chapters later. He encourages the church here in Hebrews 13 to not forget the spiritual authority that had gone before them in the church and even the current spiritual authority and how those people's lives had ended faithfully and how the people who had been ministering to them currently needed their support. So we're going to study a few verses from this text and get an idea today of what biblical church leadership looks like. And so to do that, we're going to see three things. We'll put them on the screen. If you're on the Bible app, you can follow our notes on the Bible app as well. Uh, You just look up under events, Shoreline Church. So here's our outline today. We're going to see in verse 7, the caretakers, and that's an appropriate term for the leadership of a church, the caretakers. We're going to see number two, the congregation. That would be everyone who's not in leadership, verses 17 through 19. And then we're just going to see the conclusion. It's really the conclusion of this text, what happens when there's biblical church leadership and the congregation responds biblically. But it's also a conclusion of the whole series. What is our takeaway as a church here in Lakewood Ranch. So let's begin in verse 7 with the caretakers. And um, just to prepare you, we're going to look at verse 7, but we're also going to jump around to a few different places in the New Testament. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. If you don't, we have Bibles in the back. Um, If you have an iPad, swipe or a phone, you can swipe, but be ready to turn a few different places. But let's start in verse 7. Note with me what the writer says. He says, remember your leaders. Those who, past tense, spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So can I have your attention? The Hebrew believers who received this letter, they were starting to get tempted to go back to the Levitical system under the law. But here the writer reminds them, no, 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 remember your leaders. Remember those who planted the church. Consider their way of life and how that um, turned out and imitate their faith. This may have been those who planted the church. It may have been spiritual authority um, in that region. Um, Most likely those men had died still clinging to Christ and clinging to sound doctrine and thus their life was worthy of following. Now what I want to do as we talk about the, the leaders of the church and talk about the caretakers of the church, is I kind of want to get into the New Testament picture of church leadership because there's a lot of different leadership structures out there in the body of Christ. And so depending on the denomination you ask, their church leadership looks very different. So some churches have a sole pastor who functions like a CEO. Now he may have a board, he may not have a board, Prayerfully, he does. It's better when he does. But this CEO pastor, if you would, runs the church like you would a business or a nonprofit organization. Now, there's other churches that have a solo pastor, and the solo pastor doesn't run the church like a a CEO or a business. He runs it more like he's an entrepreneur. In other words, he makes every decision. He runs everything. Even his family is on staff with him. And no one has the right or the invitation to ever question him about anything. And I would say this is very dangerous and this is frankly a bit cultish. And if you've been a part of a church like that with that type of leadership, most likely you've been burned very badly. And I'm sorry for that because that's not a biblical picture of church leadership. 
Now, on the flip side, some churches aren't led just by one. They're led by a whole committee. In fact, they love committees. There's committees for everything. There's a committee on not only the mission board on who we should support this year, but there's committees on what color the carpet should be in the kids' ministry. And that we need like 18 people on that committee to make sure we get the right color. And so all of these um, committees run the church. Other churches have maybe an outside overseer or an outside organization. And they run the church kind of like a franchise where uh, they own the property and all of the assets and they assign the person who's going to run the franchise, run the church, and they make all of the chess pieces move around. And so all the power and control comes from the outside. Some churches even have the congregation itself run everything. So they make all the decisions the pastor is hired in and until he says something they don't agree with, he's on staff, but once he says something they don't like, he's let go. But what does the Bible imagine for the church? When we look at the vast mentions of leadership in the New Testament church, what we find is two roles popping up over and over and over, and that is the elder and the deacon. So I want to look at these two roles a little bit deeper, and to do that, we need to turn to two places. So hold your place in Hebrews. Let's go to first, or first uh, we'll go to Titus chapter 1. So turn with me over to Titus chapter 1. Um, we want to begin by looking at the elders, okay? So if you go to Titus chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 5. Now, the title of elder is often interchangeable in the New Testament with the word pastor, or you could use the word overseer, or you could use the word bishop, okay? You can use these different terms. And the idea is that these are don't get lost on the terminology. They are the spiritual overseers of the church. Now, we at Shoreline and within Calvary Global Network, we hold to a complementarian view of church leadership. And if you want to know what that is, you can go to our website and learn more. But that basically means that we believe that pastor elders are always male. Okay, there's plenty of biblical reasons to believe that. And we go more in depth on our website on our beliefs page. I'd love to get into a dialogue with you after the sermon about why we hold to that position. Now, notice what Paul says in verse 5. He says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, poor guy. I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order. And here it is, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So note with me first that Paul instructs Titus, who is also an elder, to appoint elders in every town. I just want to make this quick note here that there's no such thing as a true self-appointed elder. In other words, he didn't say to Titus, just find some guys and, um, and maybe they'll make themselves elders. He says, no, you're an elder. You go appoint elders. Uh, and so it must be, an elder must be someone who's been recognized by people who are current elders and then appointed by them. Uh, there's no such thing as a true self-appointed elder. And so notice that Paul says, though, elders, plural. Do you catch that? The church is never to be led solely by one man, but by a team of elders. And this is so protective. This protects the pastor from others, and it protects the pastor from himself. Having what I call a plurality of elders is one of the safest and healthiest things I have in my own life. I have other godly men, I have Micah in my life, to pray for me, to encourage me, to hold me accountable, and to refresh me in the Lord. 
And so we need that. We need a, a plurality of elders. Now, what are these spiritual leaders supposed to look like? What are they supposed to look like? Let's look at what they're supposed to look like and then what they're supposed to do. So first, what they're supposed to look like, verse 6. Look at it with me. He says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Verse 9 says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So notice with me first, the first mark of an elder is that he is to be blameless, okay? Now, that does not mean sinless, but it does mean, listen, that there's no hidden reproach in his life that you could use to bribe him with. There's no hidden reproach. He, he says that he is, not only that, he is a one-woman man. That's another reason why we believe elders are men. Uh, not only that, but he knows how to lead his home. And so his children aren't given to insubordination. Uh, notice that he's not given to extremes, whether it's his temper, whether it's to wine, whether it's to money. He's temperate in these things. He loves others. He's hospitable. He's set apart, and he's self-disciplined. But the big thing is that he is able to teach and communicate doctrine so that if someone contradicts the truth, he can defend the flock against false teaching. Now, this is a fantastic passage, but there's another passage in the New Testament very similar to this um, that describes the pastor elder. And so I want us to turn there now to 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's just to your left, two books. So go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and starting in verse 1. Paul is ministering to Titus. He's ministering to Timothy. We call these three books, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles because it's about how to lead a flock. And so he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.1, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So note with me, first to Timothy, Paul is saying, Hey, men in the church, you should seek to be an elder. And those who seek it are seeking a noble task. But he does say it is a task. It is hard work. I like to translate verse 1 this way. You should aspire and desire to perspire. <laughs> you, you have to realize that pastoral ministry, being an elder in a church, is hard work. But it's a noble work. So the first thing that Paul says about the elder to Timothy is that this guy should want to be an elder. There should be a desire there. Listen, we should never appoint a man as an elder under compulsion, or against his will. Or heaven forbid, because he thinks it's going to be a good career choice to make a lot of money, or to become famous, or to have a lot of notoriety. Or because dad's a pastor, so I guess I got to be a pastor. Listen, it needs to be something that they desire themselves for the glory of God and the good of the church. So notice with me the similarity in what he's about to say to Timothy and what he just said to Titus. Look at verse 2. Very similar, but you'll notice one thing stands out. He says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, 
not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And then he adds this, verse 6, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So there's some additional thoughts here. Okay, first he needs to have been saved for some amount of time. He needs to be proven in his faith and also so that he doesn't become prideful. But not only that, he needs to have a testimony with the world outside of the church that wouldn't shock an unbeliever. If you went up to the boss and said, uh, hey, so-and-so is going to be an elder at the local church in town, and the boss goes, that guy is going to be a pastor? It shouldn't be a shock to the world. Notice that both conceit as well as disgrace are snares, Paul says, that the devil uses to destroy men of God. Now, just on this note, how many pastors have you heard of or have known that fell into scandal or they fell into sin and thus they brought reproach upon the name of Christ and his church? And so Paul says these men need to be proven, but they're not perfect. They need to be godly, but they're not God. Elders are those who lead the flock, they feed the flock, they defend the flock, so they need to be shepherds who genuinely love the flock of God. Now, if you're still in 1 Timothy 3, you notice there's another heading right where we left off uh, in the, at the end of verse 7. You'll see that it says qualifications for deacons, and so a second title is now given, and so I want to look at this second leader for a minute, and then we'll look at what these people do. So look at, at verse 8 with me just for a minute, the deacons. He says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. And for those who serve well as deacons, gain a good understanding for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, if you notice with me, the biggest thing that seems to be different between the deacon that we just read about and the elder, the pastor elder, is that the elder has been given the charge of teaching, whereas the deacon is serving the church in just a variety of different practical ways. But as far as their character, they should both be um, blameless and they should both hold to those same character traits. So you might say, well, where did this idea of deacon come from? Well, well, we get a glimpse of the deacon in the book of Acts. The origination of the deacon is in the book of Acts. So one more place, we're going to turn to the left one more time to Acts chapter 6. So turn with me to Acts chapter 6. As you're turning there, the church of Jerusalem went from a church about shoreline size, so about 100 to 200 adults, to the gospel proclamation of Peter at Pentecost, now they go from a church around our size to 3,000, okay? So they go from shoreline size to a mega church within the preaching of one sermon. 
And so you can imagine with me then logistical nightmares, leadership structure nightmares overnight. Because a church of 3,000 believers needs a lot more, exponentially more care and need than that of 120. And so one of the problems that also occurred in the midst of that was some racial discrimination and some people were ostensibly overlooked. So look at Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. So there's a little bit of a cultural clash because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Verse 2 says, And the twelve, that's the apostles, they summoned the full number of the disciples and they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit, full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Verse 5 says, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Pumba, no, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles. So the church affirmed, these are men among us who are, are full of the spirit and wisdom, and these men embody those character traits. And so they brought them before the apostles. The apostles prayed, laid their hands on them, verse 7. Notice what happened because of that. Because there was congregational care, it says, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Did you catch that? So the need for deacons arose, number one, out of an inability for the pastor elder body to care for the congregation. The need arose, number two, out of a racially motivated discrimination against a small part of the body of Christ. And number three, the need for deacons arose out of this need to assist the elders so they could commit themselves to preaching and praying. So if you missed it, you see it back in verse, um, uh, what is it, verse two, right? Um, yeah, the end of verse two. Deacons were literally called to serve tables. They were servers. That was what they were called to do. Uh, but this idea of the word deacon actually just is simply the word to serve. So uh, if we were to say lowercase d, lowercase deacon, every one of us, you and I, we are all deacons in the church. The lowercase d deacon just means a servant. We're all to be a servant to our brothers and sisters. So in the church, you and I are all deacons. We're all servants. In the capital D title, that idea is that the deacon comes alongside the pastors and says, I want to assist you and I want to care for the needs of the congregation. It might mean, hey, let's provide attention to some people in the church who are being neglected through injustice or through a mistake. They're just being overlooked. We want to help you with that. We want to care for the people in the church. And you know what? We want you to be devoted to praying and preaching and what I say is people. Prayer, preaching, and people, the three Ps that pastors are called to do. People meaning we're to raise up and make disciples, develop people. So deacons then should help with the church finances. They should help with the facilities. They should help with staff. Most likely, they look after the specific needs that come up within the congregation, and they find ways to support the often neglected or overlooked parts of the body. 
Uh, in his fantastic book, Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons, Pastor Thabadi, I'm not going to pronounce his last name, he says this, the Lord has not established the office of deacon as an extra to the church. The office does not exist as some obsolete appendage. Rather, deacons serve the table of the Lord in order to facilitate the advance of the gospel, the health of the body, and the rejoicing of the saints. He says deacons are indispensable in the Christian church. So let's just kind of wrap all this up. Elders and deacons are appointed by God in the church to care for the spiritual and practical needs of the flock. Okay, so with that in mind, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 13. That's what these leaders are. Now let's find out what they do. Hebrews chapter 13, back to verse 7. The writer says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. The elders and the deacons consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, I'd love you to jot down four things that leaders are called to do. Would you jot these down, write these down? You can take a picture of the screen if you want. Four things that leaders are called to do. Again, time out. This is not exhaustive. There's much more than this. But based on the text, four things. Number one, leaders are called to teach. Verse 7 says that church leaders, your pastors, spoke to you the word of God. Let me just speak for Micah and, and I as elders, as pastors. Our only authority as your pastors, as your spiritual authority, as your leaders our only authority is simply the Word of God. Amen? That's it. And so if you take away the Bible from this church, you've taken away everything, but you've also taken away your pastor's authority. There is no greater authority in the church. And so we stand upon the Scriptures to have the ultimate authority in the church. And so a true pastor thus will speak to you the Word of God. And that's the, the greatest calling that pastors have is to teach. Secondly, though, uh, we are, as pastors, to, number two, live an honorable life. Verse 7 says that, that leaders should be remembered and the outcome of their lives should be considered. Even their faith should be imitated. And so it's imperative that ministers live an honorable life. Now, we're going to peek ahead at verse 17 to get the next two. I know this is part of part two, but look at verse 17 with me. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, another translation, that would be of no benefit to you. So thirdly, if you're taking note, pastors are called to keep watch. Verse 17 says that they're literally keeping watch over your souls. Literally in the Greek, that word can be translated to search, to be watchful, even to be sleepless. You've heard of counting sheep to fall asleep. The pastor is losing sleep by counting on his sheep, right, and, and considering his sheep. So there's kind of a play on words there. But in ancient times, this idea of keeping watch, cities were surrounded by walls. And there would always be a watchman who was posted on the wall. And the watchman's job was to keep an eye on the horizon and, and to sound the alarm if a threat was seen approaching the city. Now, if the watchman was unfaithful and didn't sound the alarm, the Bible explains that the blood of the people inside of the city would be on the watchman's hands. And so it was imperative for him to sound the alarm. Otherwise, that watchman would be guilty of their slaughter. So church leaders are called to guard and defend 
the members of the church against sin, against false teaching, against cultural trends, against worldliness, against things that are unbiblical, against legalism that diminishes the work of Christ in our justification. And of course, to protect us from anything that diminishes the work of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. And so we are called as men to keep watch over the church. We're the watchmen on the walls. But number four, because of that, we are, as pastors, called to be accountable. Verse 17 says that church leaders will give an account of their ministry. That's a mathematic term. That means we are accountable. We are accountable to God. He's going to reckon a final audit of every pastor, every motive, every decision, all the doctrine, all the things you accidentally said, all the the mistimed jokes that were very insensitive, all the things that we said that we uh, thought were clever, the, the, the lack of stewardship, maybe the lack of uh, true discipline. Uh, we've been given stewardship of Jesus' precious bride, and so elders are accountable to God. They're also accountable to other elders uh, in their ministry, and not only that, they're accountable to the people that they are shepherding. And so when an elder sins, they're not just sinning against God. If they have a private scandal, it's not private, is it? No, it's public. Uh, because they're accountable to the people they've been called to care for. So pastors are accountable. Now, if you've been tracking with me, we're in point one of the sermon. So we're going to be here till like three o'clock today. We're going to move a little bit faster. So um, we're going to look at the next two sections a little faster. That's what the caretakers are called to do. What is our calling as the congregation, our response to church leadership? As a covenant community, what is our response? Look at verse 17 again from the congregation's perspective. Here it is. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then Paul says, or uh, the writer of Hebrews says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. Verse 19, I urge you, the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner, okay? You and I in the church have three, according to this text, three roles, three responsibilities, right? So as a sheep in God's fold, here's three things. I want you to write them down. Number one, our responsibility towards our leaders is number one, honor. Now we've already seen this in verse seven, but I want to reiterate it again before we look at these verses. We're called to remember our leaders, to consider our leaders to imitate their faith. So that, of course, means church leaders deserve a place of honor in our lives. Now, this is a bit cringy. Some people act differently around the pastors. And now, please don't do that. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying, like, act delicately and carefully. I've had people say, like, oh, the pastor's coming over. I better clean up the house, and I better put away some books. I'm like, come on. Just be yourself. Like, don't act differently. Um, but the pastors, the elders in our lives should have a place of honor. And, and not only that, we should evaluate, like, like, actually evaluate how they're living their lives, how they love their wife, how they raise their children, how they, uh, if you can figure this out, how they make financial decisions, how they live in the community, how they, they are interacting with unbelievers. And, and then we should find ways to consider their lives and then to imitate their faith. And so it should be the desire of every Christian 
to pursue the qualities that we just read in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. That's not just for pastors. That should be for every one of us in the church. Other than that part about teaching, there should be a desire of all of us to uh, live out the description that Paul gives Titus and Timothy. So we're to honor our leaders. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.12, he says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. There should be an esteem and a respect. Place of honor. Number two, we are in the church for our leaders to have, number two, submission. Submission is a popular word these days, isn't it? Like I see it on The View all the time, on Oprah. People are talking about submission. No, this is not a popular cultural term. And we mentioned it two weeks ago when we spoke about what does it mean to be a member of the church or a body, part of the body of Christ. But here it is again. We said this in that sermon. You don't join a church as much as you submit to one. Okay, you follow that? So I would ask simply, are you submitted to the leaders here at Shoreline? The reason we submit to our spiritual leaders is not just because they have the title pastor. You remember when your parents told you that you need to obey and you said, why? And they said, because I said so. Remember that? Uh, did you ever? Now as a parent, I found myself saying it. I'm like, no, <laughs> don't do it. But it happens. That is not why we submit or obey our leaders, because they said so. The reason is that they're keeping watch that they're called by God, they're in that position, and they're going to be audited by God for how they shepherded us. And so the argument that the writer of Hebrews says is, listen, you don't want to make your pastor's work harder. Why would you want to make it harder? Like, the pastors are already burdened with the work of, of intercession and discipleship and the ministry of the word, and they certainly can't be there for every member of the church in every single difficult circumstance by themselves. Um, but, I mean, they're already losing sleep by being watchful over the congregation, and you want to make that more difficult for them. Why would you do that? Um, so you could say that the writer of Hebrews is saying this. I'll put the phrase on the screen. We should strive to make our pastor's tasks a joy, not a job. It should be a joy and not a job. Some people believe that it's their spiritual gift to criticize the leadership. Now listen, believe me, if you've thought of any bit of criticism, if you've thought of something to like call me or text me or bring up to Micah and I, like, hey, we got this issue. Believe me, Micah and I both have wives. Our wives have already thought it. We've already had our inner critic tell us three times, okay? We already know that that's an issue in the church, right? And, and so some people believe that they've been given God-given spiritual authority to challenge the leadership and to subvert the mission and the vision of a church to their own ends. That's really the definition of division is two visions. And so you look at that attitude and that posture versus what the writer of Hebrews is, is, is giving, and that's submission. Submission is such a beautifully Christian idea because it runs against our sinful human nature. It runs counter to the wisdom of this world. The world says, hey, live independently and question everything. Not only that, but submission displays the power of the gospel to transform our independence into interdependence and takes us from self-reliance into humble submission. And so we're called to be submitted to leadership. But number three, our responsibility in the church to our leaders is prayer. Look at what Paul asks from the church in verses, I keep saying Paul, look at what the writer of Hebrews asks from the church in verses 18 and 19. He's asking for prayer 
because he wanted to keep acting honorably in all things. So he's asking for the church's earnestness in their intercession. And that, that earnestness would increase over time, not diminish. Like the longer you've been in, in the church, you should be praying more, not less. Now, without prayer, this writer, his ministry may have been hindered. And so without the church lifting him up to the Lord, uh, he may have been hindered. But with the church lifting him up, he had the Spirit's power to keep ministering effectively. John Newton wrote this poetic verse. He said, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. You and I get to join in this wonderful gift of praying for our spiritual leaders. And that is probably the best gift that you could give your pastoral uh, leaders is to pray for them regularly. You and I, we need to pray for our spiritual leaders. We need to pray scripture for them. We need to pray scripture like 2 Corinthians 2, that our pastors would not be like so many peddlers of God's word, but men of sincerity commissioned by God in the sight of God speaking Christ. We need to pray Galatians 1 that our pastors would not turn to a different gospel or distort the gospel of Christ. We need to pray 2 Corinthians 4 that our pastors would renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways and they would refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, they would commend themselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We need to pray Ephesians 6 for our pastors that, that words would be given to them and opening their mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel and that they would declare it boldly as they ought. You and I, we need to pray for encouragement and endurance and for, for fruit bearing, for provision for their families, for refreshment and for vigilance against spiritual attack. I remember about 20 years ago, I was sitting in church and a missionary couple got up, husband and wife, uh, they were missionaries to a lost, um, unreached tribe in Africa and I remember the husband shared, and then the wife began to share, and she said, I am not going back on the field if you will not pray for us. And I remember kind of being like, whoa, I don't respect that passion. What's that about? But now, after years of ministry, I, I get it. You and I do not want spiritual leaders shepherding a church without being prayed for. And so honor, submission, prayer, these are a few of our responsibilities to our spiritual leaders. Now, that's only point two. Let's wrap it up and look at our conclusion, number three. Verses 20 and 21 in chapter 13 are a sort of benediction, kind of a final prayer offered by the writer to sum up his entire letter. But insightfully, this benediction also sums up who and what the church really is. And I'm going to call this the conclusion of our series. This is kind of the final six ideas about the church. So, Look at verses 20 and 21, and then we'll walk through the six aspects of the church. He says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What an encouragement this benediction or this prayer was to the discouraged Hebrew Christians who first read it. Note with me six things. Notice with me first that the church, number one, restores the relationship of reconciliation and rest. He says, first of all, now may the God of peace, the God of peace. Romans chapter five says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot experience 
peace with God or the peace of God until you have experienced peace with God. And that's only possible, that relationship is only reconciled because of the shed blood, the finished work of Christ on your behalf. If you're here today and not a follower of Christ, you've never repented of your sin and trusted Christ by faith, the Bible says you're an unbeliever, you're, you're dead in your sins, you need to be made alive and, and thankfully, Christ has come, died in your place, and rose again. And by trusting in Christ, you can receive not only eternal life, but also a reconciled relationship with the Father. And so the God of peace, Paul, or the writer of Hebrews references, is the one who brings this relationship and reconciliation and rest back. And so that broken fellowship is restored because of the gospel. Number two, the church, notice, is rooted in resurrection. He says, the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. So apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no gospel. Thus, there is no church. So we too, as Christ followers, have been raised with Christ, Romans chapter 6, and so we now look to the God of the resurrection. So the church itself is rooted in the resurrection. Number three, the church is ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that he says that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. He's Lord. Jesus then is the head of the church. He's the great shepherd. The church is not ruled by any council or denomination and certainly not by any fallen man. It is ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, the church is redeemed because of his substitutionary atonement. Notice he says, by the blood of the eternal covenant. So it is by the blood of Christ, the blood of the eternal covenant, a new and better covenant, you could say, that we are gathered here together. That's why we're here today. So listen, the church and Shoreline Church does not exist because you and I are good, healthy, respectable citizens in this community. That's not why we exist. That's not why you and I are here. Maybe you thought it was. We can talk later. You and I are not here because we just seek after spiritual things, and we're just spiritual beings. That's not why we're gathered together, and that's not why we're here. We're not gathered here today in this place because we're better than the rest of Bradenton and Sarasota. That's not why we're here. We're here because of redeeming love, because of the shed blood of Christ. I love the refrain that I think was on Spurgeon's tombstone that says, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. That's what it's about. It's about his redemptive love. Not only that, but the church, number five, raises up followers who are fully equipped. The writer says that God is the one who equips you to do everything good that you may do as well, but he's working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So who's the one doing the work? Well, I'm doing the work. Well, no, he's the one equipping me, but, but I'm working, but he's working in me to do his will. And so this is an amazing opportunity within the church to see followers raised up and be fully equipped. God's the one who equips us to do what is pleasing in his sight. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful at the moment of conversion? Like, that, remember that moment where you, you turned from your sin and you trusted in Christ, repentance and faith? Remember when that happened? And in that moment, wouldn't it have been so awesome if just in that exact moment you were translated to glory. You're just translated from justification to glorification. You're in the presence of God in heaven. Wouldn't that just be awesome? Instead of having to kind of sludge through the interim time period of the already not yet sanctification, uh, I wish that um, that would be how it happened, but that's not 
what God desired. Like Jesus, we're submitting to the Father's will and we live lives that are well-pleasing to him. So the church is here to raise up followers who are well-equipped. But number six, the church is here to reverberate the eternal pleasure and glory of God. Notice that he says, it's through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The church exists to, we've said it a lot, to enjoy his grace, to extend his glory. So as we gather and as we scatter, we're amplifying who Christ is and what he's done. And so we're not here for our name or glory. We're here for God's glory. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, oh, this phrase, uh, to the glory of God. He says, this is our exaltation. This is our joy, our triumph, our blessedness. If we can but promote his glory, the place where we can best promote it shall be our heaven. The sickbed, the hospital, or the poorhouse shall be our heaven. If we can there best serve the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the king of glory. Maybe it's in the pandemic. We can give God glory. Now, how can we apply all of this that we've studied today? We've seen what our responsibilities are as a church. That's pretty application-oriented, and that kind of sums it up. If you're new to us as a church, we, we examine the text, and then we make some application. We've just already made application, so uh, we kind of don't need to do that. But since we're on this note, I want to spend just a minute before we close on five things that pastors are not. All right? So I want you to jot these down. Five job titles that pastors are not. Number one, Pastors are not private investigators. Amen? <laughs> we are not here to sniff out every sin in every believer's life and then just to keep condemnation upon people. Pastors, we need to faithfully preach the word of God and we need to leave room for the Holy Spirit to bring conviction and repentance in people. And we're not here to spy out and to try to catch people in sin. We're not private investigators. Number two, pastors are not arbitrators. You know what I mean by that? In other words, we're not lawyers. It's not the pastor's job to settle each and every dispute between each and every Christian. Now, of course, if things get very sinful and out of hand, Matthew 18 does encourage us as Christians to go to our church leaders and to seek their counsel and assistance. And there's certainly a place for that in the church. But it's not the pastor's job to go and to make all the children play nicely on the playground, right? We, we have to be able to develop that ability of graceful, tactful fellowship. Number three, pastors are not called to be cowboys. We're called to be shepherds. Do you know the difference? A cowboy drives the cattle from behind, and he cracks the whip with fear and threats and intimidation. He doesn't want to spend any time with the people he's given charge of. He has one goal, and that goal is to move the cattle wherever he wants them to go. Listen, pastors aren't cowboys. They're shepherds. So we don't drive the cattle from behind. No, we go out in front of the flock and we lead by example. And we speak the word of God and encourage the sheep and lead the sheep by our example through green pastures and even alongside still waters and even sometimes through the valley of the shadow of death. We're not cowboys. Number four, pastors are not celebrities. We need to amen that. Um, we were not created for fame. That's not how God created us. It's so sad to see leaders in Jesus' church growing rich, growing famous. They show up to speak at conferences, and they have their entourage with them. They wear sunglasses indoors. They basically live an untouchable and unapproachable life of influence and decadence. I, I remember approaching a pastor who I really look up to, 
and he's very well known within Calvary Chapel circles. He speaks at a lot of conferences, but he doesn't have that, that um, attitude. And I sat down with him, very intimidated, and he literally made me feel like the most important person in the room. For, for hours and hours we spoke, and then he ended up calling me and spent hours and hours for a few weeks on the phone encouraging and counseling me. And now he's one of, of my mentors and great friends. And he, like Jesus, was not looking for a following, but was looking for followers. And listen, there's a real difference between the two. Tim Challey says this, the highest privilege and the greatest honor in pastoring is not standing in the church pulpit, but praying by the hospital bed. It's not being accorded the highest place, but carrying out the least seen service. It's not broadcasting the truth to thousands, but whispering it, whispering it to one. The holiest moments of pastoring are the ones that are seen by the fewest people. Wow. We're not called to be celebrities, but finally, number five, we are not knights in shining armor. You've heard that phrase before, right? Though we're called to be an example that's worth following, we're not sinless. We're not perfect. We're not Jesus. There's only one who is good, and we aren't him. <laughs> so you can amen that. We are not him. So if you want to, or maybe you found a pastor, and you're like, that guy is a knight in shining armor. You know what? You found a pastor who never left the castle. I don't want the, the knight in shining armor. I want to look for a knight who's in battered, mangled, proven armor, a pastor who's been deeply wounded, yet who doesn't respond to others by hurting the back. He's not sinless, but he is blameless. And so these are what pastors are not, but we've looked at what they are. And before we close, I have a very special announcement. Pastor Mike and I are very excited about the next season here at Shoreline. Uh, being here at Freedom is one of a, a huge blessings. And one of the things that this quarantine has afforded us is a little more time to be working not in the church, but on the church. And we've spent some time this year combing through some great resources on, on how to raise up future um, elders and deacons. And so the plan is to invite some men to prayerfully consider eldership and to be a deacon. And as far as on the elder pastor side of things, we're actually going to go through a quite rigorous application and candidacy, and then the plan is to spend an entire year um, kind of studying, praying, um, going through doctrine together, and then inviting you as a congregation to examine um, these men's lives to see if those lives line up with the scriptures that we study today. And so the plan is to begin the training this fall. Um, and so we are probably going to be asking one or two men in the church. But here's the cool thing about today. What we also want to do is to open and extend that invitation to any man in Shoreline who believes that God may be calling you uh, to be a pastor, an elder, who desire or aspire to this noble task. And so the first step today, if that's you, you're like, I actually... And kind of sensing maybe a call to be a pastor and elder. Maybe it's not a shoreline. Maybe it's one day. But I have that sense. I would love. We would love for you today. One thing to do at the end of the service: grab a hello card and just put your name. And say I'm praying about uh, being a pastor elder, and just drop it in the tie box. We will follow up with you. That doesn't mean next week we're going to appoint you and you're an elder. <laughs> that means that's we'll do the rest. We'll start the process of prayer and consideration, and we'll take it from there. Maybe it's not an elder. Maybe it's to be a deacon. But you need to let us know. Uh, and fill out one of those hello cards. And we just want to invite you to start the joyful journey of gospel ministry just by expressing that desire to your church leadership. Now, as we close, a personal note. I want to personally affirm to you 
and, and just speak from my heart uh, candidly that it is a joy, it is an honor to be one of the pastors here at Shoreline. Not only a church planter who founded the church, but to be a member of this church, to be a part of the body. I am grateful to be serving each and every one of our Shoreliners. And it is such a gift of God's grace to be able to study and to teach the scriptures week in and week out. And for us as a church to make that um, something that is my employment full time. Um, So I am so thankful to the Lord and to our church to have this honor. Uh, We as leaders submit to Jesus' lordship over this fellowship. And I certainly have made my share of mistakes. I'm not perfect. I have many weaknesses, but I'm making it my aim to not drive my car staring in the rearview mirror, right? But to look ahead and to press on uh, for what is ahead and to be a faithful under-shepherd who just simply follows the chief shepherd carefully and without looking to the right or left. So that's my, my affirmation to you and my prayer from you is that I would continue to do that. Now, we've endured some great challenges as a congregation, and we're certainly going to endure many more. But I want to recount to you how much of a joy it is to lead and to serve you and Jesus. I count it as a privilege and an honor. And guys, I believe the next season is the best season yet to come for us as a fellowship. So my prayer, as the title of this series suggests, is that we would pursue what God has for us as a church and that we would do that together. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. We just acknowledge today that apart from your grace, nothing that we study today is even possible. We are sinful. We're wretched. We're without hope, Lord, but because of Christ, we've been made alive and we've been conformed into your image. And now we have a hope and a future. We who are far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. So may we as the church together pursue what you have as we extend your glory to the ends of the earth and enjoy your grace here together. Lord, thank you that we can this morning behold our God and see you lifted up on the cross, resurrected, ascended, and one day soon, returning in glory. We thank you, Lord, for who you are. Lord, may we behold you this morning in all the fullness of your glory, living set-apart lives, effective in the church. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Freedom Elementary School on State Road 64. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.